Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay. Already, Cliff, here it is, our premiere episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. The podcast we've been talking about for so long is finally here. Finally here, man. A long time coming. And it's pretty exciting. You know, this could be a very long-term adventure for both of us. Uh, the podcast thing is, I've always looked at it thinking that would be a lot of fun to do. And no one better to do it with than you, Bobes. We've gone on so many Bigfoot adventures together. We're interested in weird things. We're kind of eccentric as individuals. I think this might be a lot of fun to do together for a while. Yeah, most people would know us from Finding Bigfoot, the uh, Animal Planet hit show that was on for seven years. We finished that up, and now we're going into the podcasting world. Yeah, but you know, for the people who only know us from Finding Bigfoot, they may not realize how long we've been in the game. We have been doing Bigfoot stuff uh, for much longer than the television show was airing. I, I remember being on this show; it, it always struck me that you know, out of you, Moneymaker, and I, I had actually been Bigfooting the least amount of time. And at this point, I've been doing it for 25 years. You guys have years on me. How long have you been doing this? The first one I went on was in December of 83 when I was a kid. And then I really started getting into it probably about 32 years ago. Yeah, so you've been neck deep in the subject for decades and decades. I mean, I'm 25 years in, you're 30 something years in. We've lived a very, I think each as individuals, we've lived a very strange life with the course of our of our river flowing all over the place. But yeah, uh, and this is of course the next step in our adventure, this, this Bigfoot and beyond thing. So I'm really excited about it. And I would like to encourage everyone out there listening, you know, to share the news. Cliff and Bobo are back, man. We are in the public realm once again, sharing our adventures and talking about stuff that's important to us. Well, the podcast is Bigfoot and Beyond, and we're known for being Bigfooters, but we're also really interested in all kinds of cryptid species. You know, the lake serpents, sea monsters, chupacabra, dogman, werewolves, like timber giants, all that stuff. Yeah, so Boba, what, I mean, I know it's Bigfoot and Beyond. Do you expect us to go into the paranormal realm as well? Because I've got a love-hate relationship with that side of the fence, you know? I know I know where you're coming from, Cliff, and I know you're open to it. You know, you're open to it, but you got to see some evidence. I'm... I've always been into that paranormal aspect of it to a degree, more so at times than others. I believe in the, you know, they need to talk about parallel worlds and spirit world and physical world and quantum physics and mechanics is telling us, yeah, there is parallel universes around us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I have experienced some weird stuff that isn't very readily explained by this, the normal physical world. But, but then again, I mean, for as long as I can remember, I've had my weird beacon up, you know, like I've been tuning into those uh, weird frequencies in, in, you know, in the in the universe here. And so weird things come my way um, is actually Bigfoot, of all things, kind of anchored me down into the scientific realm uh, as as weird as that might sound to people out there. I, my, you know, my interests were all over the place and ghosts and UFOs and and whatever else. And then suddenly the Bigfoot thing popped on my porch. And I said, well, wait a minute, this is actually biology. And, and that's where I really started becoming grounded in the sciences. Uh, my interest, of course, is in anything unusual and weird, which is probably explain why you're one of my best friends. But at the same time, like I do, I, I, I do need to see that sort of evidence now for anything that I would deem biological. You know, ghosts and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think I've seen a ghost one time. It was very unpleasant. I didn't enjoy it a bit. Um, but I mean, I have got no evidence. All I have is a story, and I don't know how to explain that. But as far as cryptids go, if there's not evidence there, I'm going to be skeptical about stuff like that. That's what kills me is the dog man. You know, I've been looking into that for about 15 years, and I thought they were misidentified Bigfoots for a long time. But the last several years, we talked to some good people that are solid people that say they've seen them. 
Yeah. And you know, and that's something that we will be exploring here on Bigfoot and beyond. You know, I imagine most, uh, and when I say most, I don't know, more than 50% because that's what most kind of means. Um, most of our episodes will be about Bigfoot and that sort of thing. Cause that's where we have the most experience, but we will be doing episodes on Dogman. We will be doing episodes on Chupacabras. We will be doing episodes on lake monsters and whatever else crosses our path, you know, and far stranger things, things that perhaps straddle the sides of like real world versus whatever paranormal might be. And, you know, you know me well enough, Bobo, but perhaps our listeners don't. I don't have to agree with somebody to get along with them. All it takes for me is like, don't be a jerk and I'll get along with you just fine. I don't care what you think and you shouldn't care what I think. I'm going to be respectful and kind and listen intently to everyone. And I will challenge those guests as necessary, just like I would expect people to challenge me. And that's just some of the stuff that you can look forward to on Bigfoot and beyond as we cruise through this adventure together. You said it perfect, Cliff. Ah, well, thank you. I'll just, uh, (laughs) thanks everybody. Thanks for everybody listening. Come back next week. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know very much about dog, man. You know, they scare me. I don't look into that stuff. I, I don't know very much about all these other cryptids. So I, we, I, or certainly me, but we will be coming at from a place of ignorance in a lot of ways, talking to people who are recognized, um, you know, quote unquote experts in these other things. Who are we to say they can't be real based on what we think, you know, without having the, uh, the evidence and the information. Exactly. Yeah. It's when, People just go, yeah, there's no Bigfoot. It's like, dude, I've seen it. Even if you haven't seen it, the evidence is there. So when I used to like be dismissive of Mothman and Dogman and all that, when I talked to them, they'd be like, well, what's the difference? I'd be like, you're right. Yeah, I, I don't know. So I gotta, if I want to have an opinion on it, I should get some facts or as much information as I can about it. Right. And, you know, there is a difference between being dismissive and um, challenging someone. Again, because uh, people challenge me on my belief on our, my, my confidence that Sasquatch is real by saying, okay, where are the bones, you know, or, you know, why, why don't people see them more or whatever else, whatever thing they throw at me that they think they got me on, which of course all have perfectly normal answer, answers because mm-hmm. those are perfectly normal animals. Um, but that's not, that's not being dismissive. That's kind of uh, inquiring. That's challenging. And that sort of thing should be welcomed, especially in a democratic or so-called democratic society like we have. It's okay to be challenged on your belief because you should be able to defend your point of view. Um, And if you can't, then maybe you should question your own point of view. You know, and I think you and I have been challenged on Bigfoot enough over the last few decades that we're pretty solid that this thing's here. I mean, we've seen them and we've heard them and, you know, the evidence is there and et cetera. But, you know, when it does come to Mothman, I don't know if those are real. I've never seen one. I've never even like really looked into it so much. I know some people say they've seen them, but I've got some issues, man. I want to know where's the ecological niche if it's a biological animal. You know, I, I need to know what do they eat? I need to know where the footprints are. I need to know where the spore is. You know, those are questions I have, and I'll certainly be bringing those up with any witnesses we have on. I think Mothman's a completely paranormal entity. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's any biological basis for that at all. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, perhaps through Bigfoot and beyond, we might be able to find out a little bit more and come to some conclusions about that. And I think at the end of the day, you know, if something is purely paranormal, it's kind of like, you know, I'll just like I do with everything else, like that in that realm. So I'll just throw my hands up and say, well, what can we do about that? I don't really care about that stuff too much, you know? I mean, with Bigfoot, you can, you can track one. You can see what they've been eating. You can see their scat, you know, their poop, what they've been eating. You can, um, you know, see their footprints. And you, you make it used to some individuals in the same area, and you'll see them grow over time. You know, you find some nine-inch tracks. You go back a couple years later, they're 11 and a half inch, you know? So there's... the Bigfoot has, to me, so much more than these other things to go on. Yeah, you know, that's what helped me zero down my interest in the weird two Bigfoot back in the day when I was interested in aliens and UFOs and everything else. So I didn't know what I could do about those things, you know? It was before all the television shows, Ghost Hunters and stuff. And, I mean, thank goodness I didn't, you know, get into that stuff first. Otherwise, I'd be, like, you know, recording things in the night and yelling at at the walls in empty houses, you know? Um, Then again, I'm yelling into the woods in empty forests. So really, what is the difference at the end of the day? (laughs) I never understood why ghost hunting is so much more... Popular. I mean, I get it on the one level that it's easy to you go to a haunted house and you know that's where the thing's supposed to be. With Bigfoot, you can go out for months and months and years and years and never have anything happen. So I get that that it's not as instantly rewarding or as easy to accomplish like what you're looking for. But I just 
never understood why ghost hunting is so popular in Squatch and as far as participation is just so far behind. I, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, that, that's, a, I guess, a question for the, you know, um, sociologists or something. I don't really know. I mean, if it, for me, it was like, okay, well, ghosts and stuff, first of all, they're scary, you know, and, I, and I've probably been trained by horror movies to fear them perhaps more right. than I should or something. But uh, they're, it's scary and whatever weird experiences I've had with that sort of thing, I don't, didn't enjoy very much um, at all, really. But the Bigfoot thing, I understand biology and I understand like bears, for example, aren't necessarily something to be feared. They're to be respected and, you know, you don't want to go up and hug one or something, but they're not necessarily to be feared. And I, I would assume that Sasquatches being biological are probably very similar. And I think that's what kind of put me on this path is that it's something I can actually do something about and maybe even come back with something like a footprint track or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. I feel the exact same way. So Bobo, I mean, I knew about you before I met you and we'll get into how I met you a little bit later, but like, what do you think people out there know you best for? Like, how would they know you if not from finding Bigfoot? A lot of people used to see me on, I did some monster quest episodes and mysterious encounters for people that were into Bigfoot. You know, if I went to a conference and something like, Oh, I saw you on monster quest or mysterious encounters, that kind of thing. So a lot of people knew me for that. But before that, I guess most people knew me if I traveled somewhere it would be for surfing or uh, when I used to race Albuquerque canoes, like Hawaiian style canoes. I raced those, you know, we were national champions with the world championships, all that kind of stuff. So people knew me from that. Then um, touring with some bands, you know, cruising up and down the coast, cruising around. I met a lot of people doing that. So, but they always knew me as a Bigfoot guy also because I always was into Bigfoot. You're a large man in general, but you uh, you also have a large personality. You're just a, a big presence in any room. And it always struck me that uh, anybody who even went to Humboldt after I met you, and I said, oh, by any chance you meet Boba? He goes, oh, yeah, I met that guy. I know that guy. Or, or like, you know, Travis and Brandon Laws, for example, um, two guys in Long Beach that I used to play in bands with all the time, uh, a bass player and a drummer. Um, great guys, great musicians. And they, they were in Humboldt for like a month or two months. And I mentioned, oh yeah, a buddy of mine, Bobo lives up there. He goes, oh my God, Bobo saved our lives. It's like, oh, of course he did. Of course I did? he did. They said they would have starved without you because everywhere they went with you, they, they got hooked up with beer and food. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah they were, they were homeless and stuff and they, you helped them out and stuff. So yeah. And I was at some, God, I was sitting at a bar eating, um, a quick dinner and having a beer on some flight somewhere last year. And um, I mentioned like a, a friend of mine in Humboldt. I'd even say your name. And the guy says, yeah, I've met some guy in Humboldt. His name was Bobo of all things. I went, no kidding. No. <laughs> yeah, you, you, <laughs> you're legendary, but I don't know why. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I'd say it's from bad life choices mostly. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you were known, I guess, before as a musician and fisherman. Well, yeah. I mean, my first job was in fishing tackle stores when I was 16 and I worked for, you know, t various tackle stores in Long Beach, California and Seal Beach, Angler's Tackle Box and Fisherman's Hardware and stuff. So I, I would fish the boats and I made a lot of friends and met a lot of people doing that. But, um, I, I played in a lot of bands throughout my life. You know, I've started playing in bands when I was probably like 16 or something. Um, and Long Beach, California is a pretty small music scene. I mean, we used to play parties with Sublime and those like with house parties, you know, we went to different high schools, but they would be the other band playing and stuff. And, um, yeah, so I just kind of kept playing music and whatnot. And I met a lot of good friends by doing that. But the Bigfoot thing has always been there. Even when I was fishing and stuff, I would just, you know, take off and go to Northern California for a week or two or three at a time. Um, when I, you know, had summers off and I could afford the time. Uh, but I, I think in the Bigfoot world, per, I don't know what I'm probably best. In. I guess maybe as a footprint guy or something. Oh, you know, the, sure. you're the foot yeah. fetish guy. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, uh, I guess that's because I started collecting footprint casts back in the 1990s at some point. In fact, I bought my first footprint casts, my first two, from Dr. Grover Krantz. Um, in the very, very early days of the internet, um, he had a website that he sold um, a number of copies, mostly Freeman stuff, but some Patterson Gimlin stuff and, you know, uh, probably a few other things too. Um, the website's not up anymore. You can't even really find it on the, the time machine or whatever that thing is called. Uh, um, but yeah, I bought my first cast from there and it just kind of snowballed. Um, and now if you count the originals, uh, that I own or have cast myself, plus the orang pendex stuff, plus the copies, plus the hoaxes, 
um, that I've uh, uh, documented as well. I mean, my collection is easily over 300, probably probably closer to four if we're considering, you know, I have a I have 70 something or 80 London casts themselves. So, I mean, there's got to be up towards 400. And I'm, I'm lucky in a way. Actually, I've been lucky in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong. But it's really only by having that breadth of data at your disposal can you start seeing the patterns and similarities and differences between them all. And I've talked to Dr. Meldrum about this a lot because he's the other guy with the huge cast collection. You know, he has more than I do because whenever I get something new, I give one to him. I give a copy to him, right? Because um, for me, they're cool. They're like baseball cards. But for him, they're right. you know something else. They're uh, an academic pursuit, you know. But uh, if you have five or eight casts or something in your collection, that's a good start. But you just don't see the patterns and the similarities yet. You really do need dozens of these things to start wrapping your brain around what's going on. And I kind of stumbled into that on accident, I guess. And because of that, people recognize me as someone who uh, is really into evidence. But you've read the books that if you're going to get like a degree in anthropology or physiology, you've read all those textbooks that someone that gets a degree would have in foot morphology. Well, I've, I've read the interesting parts to me. Um, and, you know, I, I do, uh, what is that? Um, self-degrandize, is that the word? Um, uh -huh. I sometimes make up words, you know, but I, th I think that's a word. Yeah, I self-degrandize myself. I kind of play myself down a lot. And even Dr. Meldrum gets on me about that. And he goes, Cliff, you don't have to have a degree to know what you're talking about. Um, and, you know, I'm very lucky that, that Dr. Meldrum has kind of taken me under his wing and shown me a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And, and uh, I mean, I'm, I almost hesitate to say, but he respects my opinion on these things. I I'm know very, he does. very lucky. Yeah, yeah. And we become good friends. Said, I've always said that uh, when the Squatch is recognized as a biological species, Cliff's going to get a lot of honorary doctors. It's going to be Dr. Berkman. <laughs> I suppose so, you know, but, uh, you know, who doesn't like playing doctor, I suppose. Oh. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I, I guess that's how we're both known for the most part. Um, finding Bigfoot was cool. I mean, most people know us from that. Uh, I think you can, people on the podcast here can probably look forward to a lot of insights into finding Bigfoot stuff we, that was edited out of the show. I mean, I can even see how later down the line, you know, we can start even like we, we can do commentary on some of these episodes um, as we watch them. It might be kind of fun. I don't know. Cause it's our format, man. It's our show. We can do whatever we want. Sky's the limit. Our our imaginations are what binds us. So, yeah, I guess we'll definitely do some recaps on some behind the scenes or follow up or expand on episodes that we did in Finding Bigfoot. And also, we've kept in touch with a lot of those witnesses and update some things that have happened or new evidence or stories they've had. Yeah, that's some of the best stuff that come from Finding Bigfoot are going out there and meeting these witnesses, either long-term witnesses or really hardcore Bigfooters who are still out there doing it, we keep in contact with. But, you know, people have their own idea of what it's like to be on a TV show. And they're all totally incorrect because <laughs> it's, it, it's unlike what people think. It's not exactly glamorous, you know, staying in these out-of-the-way places and you know, and the, the work schedule is grueling and, you know, and you're on the road with these same people and everything. And it's just, it can be a lot, man. So that was, but, that was the good part was being on the road with the crew the whole time. You know, that was like, we, we were a family on the road and I still keep in touch with everyone from the show and that worked on it. And so, yeah, that was, that was great. But yeah, it's not quite, I mean, yeah, I mean, I hated a lot of it, like standing around freezing 15 degrees out and blowing wind and your batteries are freezing. You're just, constantly down fixing stuff and i mean i'm not i'm not gonna complain it was great i'm glad i did it but it's not what people think for sure no not at all not at all and of course and like all good things it must come to an end you know and i miss it sometimes a lot of times i don't you know i'm um i'm married now it'd be really hard to be in the road seven or eight months a year like we were um but yeah, I mean, it's hard to regret finding Bigfoot at all. I mean, it gave me great memories, uh, more experience than I could have ever asked for. It literally gave me my two greatest loves in my life, my dog and my wife, you know? Um, yeah, it was it was a hell of a ride, you know? Just the experiences we had, and probably nobody has been to as many squatch spots as we have just from the show. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Um, and just imagine all the places that people have gotten footage that we got to visit. We easily have been to the most of anybody on the planet. You know, no one else has gone to more places where somebody claims to have gotten a picture or a footage of a Sasquatch. So, and to do all those recreations, um, you know, it's one thing to go out in a place and like put your hand above your head, like this big. And they go, yeah, about that big. Right. But when you're out there 
trying to recreate a Sasquatch photograph to find any information that might be in it, you know, like uh, about size or shape or anything like that. It really gives you a new perspective on the level of analysis that can be done on this Bigfoot evidence. And for me, it might have ruined me because at this point, I'm really, I mean, yeah, sighting reports have their place. The stories are important, but not nearly as important, in my opinion, as the emphasis that the Bigfoot community puts on them. I'm not winning friends by saying that. I know because people love the stories, but stories are just words. And if you've read uh, Game of Thrones, one of the things they say in the books all the time is that words are wind. Yeah, but you have a photograph or something. That's something else, man. It's, so it's kind of turned the page for me. It's like, yeah, I still, I still take sighting reports because those will help me perhaps run across a Bigfoot on my own. But at the end of the day, man, the data is where it's at. That's really my main focus at this point. In the modern uh, era, you know, with these digital cameras and cell phones with digital cameras built into them, we're getting a lot of photos that, are, that just basically suck because no one uses film anymore. And with film, at least you can enhance it. There's a lot more you can do with it. These digital, you know, blurry, pixelated cell phone pictures, you can't do a lot more with it, really. You, know, you can do some color contrasting, but you can't get the detail out of it like you could like with the PG film or something. Unless you go to the location. If you can go to the location and take pictures with the same camera or even a different camera, um, you can get the size estimate of the right. creatures, size and width and distance and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, a picture alone is interesting at best. Going there and taking comparison photographs and whatnot, uh, that's really where it's at. You know, that's when you can, it's like, it's like wringing a washcloth to get that last drip of water out of it. Uh, that that's what it's like for me at least. And finding Bigfoot really put, because, you know, I was billed as the evidence analyst, um, because I'm a nerd, I guess, you know, and I was into doing that stuff beforehand, but like, really honing my skills out in the woods for finding Bigfoot, getting the information out of these pictures and whatever else. Um, I got pretty good at it. You know, that's what I love doing. Like I just fell in love with doing that. We call guys like you pixel counters. Yeah. And you know what? P counting pixels is, is, part of the method of determining the size of the animal. Yeah. And so I've been trying to do that ever since, whether it's with footprint photographs or uh, photographs of Sasquatches, uh, um, fake or real that have crossed my desk since finding Bigfoot. I'm still on the track, you know, I'm still hitting, I'm still hitting the woods and pr probably not as much, not two or three times a week like I was. Um, but man, now I live in the woods. So I don't, I'll have to do a step out my door. So yeah, you had action at your house uh, recently, right? I did. I did. Yeah. Um, I, I, I live on property um, out near the Sandy River outside of the, a little town called Sandy. Um, and clearly someone like myself, you know, or, or you for that matter, if you're going to buy a property in the woods, you're probably going to use sighting reports as a basis of where that property is. Yeah. And so I did. I did. Yeah. There's a stretch of the Sandy River that um, I, I'm privy to about five or eight Bigfoot reports. And I just live a few miles away from there on the edge of the green belt. And uh, sure enough, a couple times a year, weird things happen on my property that if, you know, if, if it's not Bigfoot, I would have a hard time explaining. Yeah. Hold on a second, Cliff. Yeah. Yeah. Monkey, come in. Hold on a second. Oh, good girl. So pretty. Did you go take a poop in the neighbor's yard? <laughs> good light. Looking light, monkey. Looking light. Oh, yeah. Good girl. Look lighter. So, Bobo, today you asked people who are our future fans, people probably listening right now on your Facebook page, um, if they had any questions for you and I to answer. And you have quite a few, I understand, for us to go through tonight. Yeah, 300 and something. Most popular, which I get asked every time, no matter what I post, is when's the show coming back? Cliff, can you answer that, please? Never. But you can watch uh, repeat episodes of Finding Bigfoot. Um, I, I happen to know that there's some on Amazon Prime right now. Yeah, they're, you know, they're free on there. And then you can, I think it's pay for seasons and episodes on Hulu for the other seasons. Yeah, and also, of course, Animal Planet Go is the Animal Planet streaming app, and they're all on there, and they will forever be all on there, from what I understand. So um, those are places you can go watch Finding Bigfoot right now, if you'd like to. But as far as new episodes, ain't going to happen. We are done. Frankly, uh, um, 100 episodes, 10 years is kind of enough time um, for one project. It's time for us to move on. Yeah, I agree. It was fun while it lasted, but it's definitely it's run its course. Um, my second most asked question was, how did we meet? And I couldn't remember if it was Grinder or J-Date. 
<laughs> I don't know. I was I, I was so drunk at the time. I can't even remember. No, actually, um, I, I happen to know how we met, or at least I have my story on how we met. Uh, the first time, well, I, I knew about you from like w- things that you had done. I know th- I, I saw the, um, the, the, the John Freitas documentary where you were with those guys in Bluff Creek doing all that stuff. And, you know, I'd heard your name around the Bigfoot circles cause I had been Bigfooting since 94. And I think I met you in, was it 2004 or 2005? Uh, 2005 because uh, Yammeron, Tommy Yammeron kept saying, you got to meet my buddy Cliff. And I'm like, dude, I got so many people. Everyone that came to Bluff Creek and Humboldt Redwoods would try to get a hold of me. And I was like, at first I'd go do it. But then I started getting so many people calling me. And it went, c- compared to now, it was nothing. But I I went out a few times with people that just were lame. I got stuck out for like three or four days with someone that I just did, never would want to spend time with. So now I was like, nah, I'm good, I'm good. I, I'm just going by myself. I got it, I'm by myself, I'm good. And yeah, I just kept saying, no, you got to meet this guy. And then Bob Strain was all, oh, Cliff's the best, man. You got to meet up with Cliff. And then you showed up at my house one day. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was already Bigfooting. Like at that point in 2005, I had been going to Bluff Creek for at least two weeks every summer. Um, sometimes twice a summer I'd go up there and spend a week or two, you know, so I was going to up there a lot and I had met, um, Bob strain and Tom Yamarone, I think in 2001, because Kathy and Bob, uh, Kathy strain and, um, Bob strain, it was Kathy Moskowitz at the time. They hosted a, an event out and invited some, you know, low key big footers, just people they kind of knew tangentially. And I somehow ended up on the invitation list. And that was my first foray into being social in the Bigfoot scene. Cause I'm not really a social guy. I spend a lot of time alone as you can tell by my weird personality. Um, but, uh, it was, I guess it was through Tom that we met, but it was on t- in 2005. Wasn't it on the, on the BFRO expedition in the Redwoods? No, no, you showed up at my house and you, was that what it was? I jumped in your old, uh, Chevy blazer too. Oh, no, no. I disagree. I disagree because I was up in Humboldt at the BFRO expedition, you know, with Bart and Leela and you and Moneymaker. That's the first time I met you and Moneymaker was on that trip. But I came back in the summer and that's when I called you because I was up doing my thing at Bluff Creek. The expedition was in May because I remember I had to take a day off of work to get up there because it's a 12 hour drive, you know, so I had to take a day off of work and I was on that expedition. I remember it was in May. I was up there for a job interview to see if I can land a teaching gig in Humboldt. I just remember you coming to my house, and all I had to go with was that like five pound can of sardines. So it was pretty nasty. And then I had seven pounds of wasabi peas. Yeah, you know, you do make a hell of a first impression. <laughs> that was the worst because after like four or five days, all I had was wasabi peas. I started taking these weird green poops and started feeling pretty sick. Yeah, yeah. And what a joy to camp with that was. <laughs> But you know what else I remember about that trip that I think people would get a kick out of is um, Eric from Sublime was up. He was touring with that band Short Bus at the time. I think that was the same trip. And and I hung out with you for a couple days, and then you had to go drive um, Eric and those guys out to Bend or somewhere like that and then drive them back on tour. Just had to take a few days, and you're going to meet me out again in Bluff Creek. I was just going to be alone for the, the, those three or four days while you're gone. That's when the bus driver kicked him off the bus. Yeah, that's also when uh, you got pulled over by the police for supposedly um, flicking uh, basically feces on the cars behind you. Do you, you want to tell us that story? That's a pretty good one. Oh. Uh, Not so much? Am I allowed to tell that? Well, I can tell what I remember and you can augment. Would you like me to do that? Sure, because I'm not admitting nothing. Yeah, okay. Well, allegedly, this may or may not have happened. Uh, but yeah, you, you drove Eric and those guys out there and th- there was some issue with the car or something like that. There was some rental car and you ended up driving it. Like you spent the night out there at somebody's house, but not inside the house. You slept in the car oh. in front of their house. And in the middle of the night, if I remember right, you had to take a dump, but there was no place to do it because like you're in a suburban neighborhood somewhere. So you yeah. got one of those plastic grocery bags mm-hmm. and did the deed inside the car and then, you know, nobody wants to sleep in a car that's enclosed with a bag of your own poop, right? So you tied it up and, and tied it to the luggage rack or something on the SUV you rented outside yeah. and forgot about it. And the next day on the drive home, you, uh, you got pulled over by the police because some old couple in an RV behind you um, called you in because they thought you were throwing human feces out the window and those landing on their SUV or their, their RV or whatever behind them. 
And um, you were saying, oh, I totally forgot. And you tried to explain to the police officer. And I, I, from what I, what I remember, at least you told them that what you were doing, like you were basically uh, um, on tour with the guys from sublime at their, their, their offshoot band at the time. And um, the guy, the cop loved sublime. You gave him a few CDs and you got off the hook. Yeah, I thought you were talking about the time I threw feces on purpose. No. <laughs> yeah, no. You know, there, there was still the, the handle to the grocery bag, plastic bag, was still wrapped around the top of the luggage rack. Yeah. It was just shredded, poo-stained plastic still up there a little bit. Yeah, so you're I, driving on the freeway, like 70 or 80 miles an hour on the freeway. <laughs> maybe 90. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it depends on what the sign may or may not have said. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were talking about this other story where I threw it. No, I'd love to hear that story too, though. <laughs> That's when I was denying. Yeah, that one was that was a that was just actually an accident. Yeah, purely accidental. You know, like, <laughs> like you know that really puts a lot of truth behind the statement. Shit happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was a good first impression. Yeah, yeah. Between those hobby peas and that story, when you came back and joined me at Bluff Creek for the next few nights. Um, yeah, man. Like I, I went home with my head spinning, going like, "Who the hell is this guy?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably just wondering when I was going to go pick up my Nobel Prize. <laughs> probably. Yeah, man. Good, good times though, man. We've had so many good times in Bluff Creek, and over the years, just and finding Bigfoot was just like the tip of the iceberg, really, man. I mean, we were hanging out for a long time before the show popped up. Yeah, we had some good luck, you know, back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, like between several of the spots, I don't think we want to say the names on air or anything like that, but um, there's one, two, three or four spots out there that, that really interesting things happened over the years. You know, the water spot was one of the most productive spots in the whole Bluff Creek area. I, th I thought, you know, and the way it's interesting, the way that like, like you already knew about the spot. How long have you been working Bluff Creek? Oh, my first time in there was 87, 88. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember where you went or anything like that? Or went to Laos. Okay. When I first started though, I, I was I had parked down at the uh mouth of Bluff and like scrambled up for a ways. Yeah. Like the first probably three or four times I went, like, I kept trying to see because I was in pretty good shape back then. I could go pretty far. So I'd go up there and I'd be like, God, it's just a steep walled canyon. This is I don't see like trees coming down to the water or anything like that. And then then I found out now you gotta drive way up, you know, Lonesome Ridge area, this and that. And because it was pre pre-internet, it was hard to get info on stuff. Oh yeah, it was really hard. Yeah. And of course you chose to go there for the film, obviously, and and you live nearby. It made a lot of sense. Um, but but was there activity going on when you decided to start working Bluff Creek? No, and the people that were there told me it was nothing had been up there for ten years at the time, which I really doubt later because I, I talked to people later that had stuff happen during that time frame. But I, the other thing was that I really didn't know what a lot of sounds were that I'd hear. Mm -hmm. I would be like, I never had anyone with me to tell me what. Like I didn't grow up hunting with a dad. I'd be like, oh, that's a, you know, and that's a fox, that's an elk, that's a whatever, whatever, you know, that's a, a you know, barred owl. I had heard things once in a while, but I just wasn't sure what I was hearing. In hindsight, I still I don't know that I ever had anything definitive happen up there. At that point. And now you have. Right. You've seen oh, it, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did you first stumble upon the water spot? Um, I saw it on a map and just was checking out different water sources and these springs that were there. Back then, before they decommissioned all the roads, there was way more logging roads out there active that they kept open. You know, I remember that. I remember I I started working Bluff Creek in '94, and I remember there used to be a lot more roads available to drive on. Oh yeah, you could you could access all kinds of different spots. So, and I moved around a lot. That was before I kind of figured on. Well, I'd go to Laos to swim usually. That was my spot to go cool off. Mm -hmm. Then I'd just go. I'd sleep there a lot, or um, I usually I'd go back there to sleep a lot of the time, or I'd just sleep in my truck wherever I was. But I never really heard much. I mean, Bluff Creek's never been a great spot for vocalizations, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I, all my years, I mean, again, I've gone there almost every year since 94 for a pretty good amount of time. Um, and I, all those years, yeah, I've been growled at and, you know, that sort of stuff. But as far as like the traditional classic vocalizations, I've heard one in all that time. One. A ton of yeah. knocks. I've heard whistles and knocks, had rocks thrown at me, growled at, screamed at real close, but not that long traditional sort of, I'm going to do a vocalization, maybe get something back. I've only heard one time. Well, I've heard them up 
um, about five, six miles from there, I've definitely heard more vocalizations way up on another mountain. Yeah, I did hear, I've probably heard about, and it's not a lot, but like seven or eight vocalizations up there. Um, and then down in Laos camp over a two year period, I probably heard vocalizations three or four nights out of, you know, way over a hundred. Well, it got at Laos camp. It's loud there. So the, you, they must've been pretty good vocalizations. Yeah. It, well, it was pretty dry. Some of those years. Yeah. And I guess if you get out of that little bowl, like go for the walk towards a bridge or something like that, then, uh, you know, you can hear a lot more. Well, yeah, I'd walk up that the old there was that, well, there was that good logging road. Then you could just walk up, up by notice. Yeah, that got shut down pretty quick too. Yeah, um, yeah. notice has changed dramatically since the very beginning. I thought notice was one of the best spots over there, actually. Yeah, that's Notice yeah. Creek for the listeners. Anybody who's not um, familiar with the Bluff Creek area, we're talking about Notice Creek that flows into Bluff Creek, just probably a quarter mile or a half mile away from a, the very famous campsite called Laos Camp. Yeah, and then last camp, I mean, it it's great because the sun doesn't hit you. can stay up all night, go squatch in and sleep in late. The sun won't hit you till like noon because it's got big old growth trees in there. And it's got a great swimming hole, more of a, wouldn't call it a swimming hole, more of a jump in and out, cool off in freezing water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really cold, but beautiful and, and clean and deep. And that's one of the best spots on the river, I think, you know. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's other good spots. But that's the easiest to access one. Yeah, you can drive pretty much right to it. You know, can't drive yeah. in the water, but you know, you gotta you gotta walk 30 yards. But besides that, <laughs> it's you know, it's and you know, uh, and think of all the history in that area as well. Uh, that's why one of the reasons I started going there is like, yeah, Laos Camp is where the Slick Expeditions camped. I mean, you you name the Bigfooter, and most likely he or she has been right there. You know, like Bob Titmus, John Green, um, uh, Tom Slick, uh, like all the old timers. Renee you know? DeHinden. Renee DeHinden, yeah. Uh, Peter Byrne. All that, like you just go down the list of all these historic Bigfooters, and every one of them has slept right there. So it's, you're really walking in a historical spot. That's part of the reason I love Bluff Creek because, you know, there's plenty of good Bigfoot spots. Um, and there's, there's probably better Bigfoot spots in Bluff Creek. As far as the history goes, where else can you possibly go, you know? It's the Mecca. I mean, it's, it's our Yankee stadium or whatever, you know, it's the most, it's the most iconic spot for Bigfoot period. Yeah. Yeah. By far, by far. And, and every Bigfooter I think should goes there, go there just to, if nothing else, and to just get some perspective on what those early researchers were seeing with their own eyes. Cause you can go there and do the same thing. Um, like I just mentioned the notice Creek area, right? Notice Creek has a bridge going over it. And right there in the bridge, it says 1958 because that bridge was built by Jerry crew and his road crew, the same crew that, uh, shortly after they built that bridge, they started getting footprints crossing their road and they cast that very, very first known Bigfoot footprint, 1958. And that's the word that that's the cast that gave the word Bigfoot to the American public. And you can go to notice Creek and see the bridge. And it says 1958 right there. And that bridge was probably built uh, just a few weeks before that famous footprint was obtained because the footprint that was obtained just a little bit further upstream um, from the bridge. It's the historical spot. It's the, it's the focus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but for modern stuff, I mean, I had probably the craziest thing I've heard a Sasquatch do was there. Um, I was with Manny. He unfortunately passed away about five or six years ago. He was doing a whole year out in the woods without coming to town. His dad would drop off supplies every month. Wow. And he'd hike in and pick them up and hike back out in the woods. And he broke his leg and got exposure in the snow and ended up dying out there in the woods. And it was pretty bummer, but I had some uh, good times at Bluff Creek. And I think it was 2000 we were down in there. And when I, we were, I was doing all my aggressive calls and, and he had a real bad, his hair was all up. He was feeling pretty sketched out. And I was like, oh, you know, it's, I think they're around, but whatever, you know, I'm not for anything gnarly. And then we were at camping at Laos and all of a sudden we just hear like trees smashing, breaking fast. And anyone that's been to Laos camp or you camp, the Bluff Creek does like a horseshoe around the camp. It's like a flat that sticks into the creek and it comes and it does like a 180 around, like a horseshoe shape around the camp. Yeah, and, yeah for, and rivers are called oxbows. Yeah, oxbows, exactly. And the, how, how, how high would you say those cliffs are across from 
the other side of the creek, like 140 feet, something like that. Yeah, I think that's probably a good guess. They're pretty high, man. Yeah. Yeah. So something like that, 140, 150 feet. And we were laying down. We had gone to bed. It was about 3.30 in the morning. We just heard smash, smash, smash. And then kabloosh, this giant boulder hit the water in the creek. It came down like a meteorite and just displaced all the water. And I just just distinctly remember hearing it hit other rocks and the gravel and like dry. Like it came down with such force. It came down from so high. The water came over the tables, over us. There was water splashed 30 feet up on the trees there by the creek. I mean, it was unbelievable. The next day, because we went down in the creek all the time, the next day there was this giant boulder. I'm not exaggerating, dude. Like four feet long, three feet high, three feet wide. Had to weigh like a ton or something. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not great at estimating rock uh, weight, but it was. It had to be over a thousand pounds. We couldn't budge it in the water at all. I mean, it was. It was there for years, and one of the big floods kind of moved it a little bit. The amount of strength it takes to throw that thing out, because even though it's it's not a pure cliff it's like angled up but it's steep real steep it's it's almost impossible to walk up even you have to climb up but if you go up it, even if you can get all the way to the top so i mean but from the top so it had to go out at least 40 feet from where he threw it to drop down into the water 40 50 feet so it took an incredible amount of strength and man he slept in his truck sitting up the rest of the night like and he never slept out of his truck again after that out there <laughs> yeah well, um, that way, you, how do you know how high the water went? Like, did you get up to go look or something in the middle of the night? Oh, yeah. We, well, yeah, I was just laying out. I, I didn't have a tent or nothing. I was just laying out in my bag. Yeah. And I, water went all over the whole camp. It was crazy. Like, it was like a meteorite hitting, you know? It just vaporized all the water and just displaced all of it. It came down with such force. It was so big and heavy that it just knocked all the water out of the way. And you, and you could hear the, the hit the gravel and heard the whoosh, the water rush back in. And that huge whatever you call that plume that comes up just through water everywhere. Like it was like a double wave of water, the initial splash out. And then that plume that comes up at the secondary. Yeah. Yeah. From, you know, from experience in outhouses, I call that splashback. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> so yeah. But then after that, I mean, had some sightings on Bluff Creek couple, I guess, you know, when I, when I read other people's reports and hear guys talk, like they wouldn't even count a lot of my sightings as sightings because you know, I saw it at nighttime. I couldn't make out the exact features. You know, it might have been human-sized, a couple of them, but... Well, screw them, man. Take what you can get. Right. Well, anyway, so my only daylight glimpse was there at camp, and it was 105 degrees. I thought there was no way we were going to see anything. I walked out with my buddy, and we were walking down Bluff Creek, and all of a sudden, we started getting knocks and whistles, and I was like, oh, my God, no way. And I was telling my buddy, listen, that's them. He's like... He was tripping out. He's like, whoa. But so I had to walk back to camp and that was like 40 minutes or something. But before I turned around to go back to camp, all of a sudden rocks, like 30 pound rocks, 20 to 30 pound rocks started coming flying out of the tree line. That was probably, they were a good hundred feet back, 80 feet back. And these trees were going and these rocks were coming out and going over these like 30, 40 foot trees going over the top of them arcing down and landing in the creek. None of them landed on the trail where we were. We, we were going in and out of the creek, like walk apart in the creek and part on the road, old decommissioned road. Yeah. And because uh, I'd, I'd go, I'd walk the creek when there were sandbars looking for prints. Mm -hmm. And these big rocks, I was up on the road again, but when the rocks started coming, they, they all landed in the creek, but they were just going bang, like, you know, a big rock hitting that hard makes a lot of noise. And I was like, oh my God. And just the week before I had my video camera stolen up in Hoopa, when I was parked illegally out there trespassing, but uh, on the Indian reservation. So all I had was an audio recorder. So I went back to, the, uh, well, at least I'll get the knocks because they were whistling and knocking and throwing rocks. I was like, well, at least I can get audio of that. And I went back to my truck and it took about 40 minutes to get there, something like that. And Monkey was um, still young, and but she knew it was, like she was pretty alert. And I was bending down in my truck to get the recorder that I had stashed underneath the driver's seat. And just as I started to bend down, my hair kind of cascaded, you know, as I leaned down, it fell to the side of my head, like over my temple and hanging down. It must have been beautiful. <laughs> it was like an 80s rock video. <laughs> and I, I see, as I'm bending down, I see Monkey just go rigid and her ears go forward and her whole body, like point kind of like just, like a, it was it was obviously something. And I, I didn't turn my head the whole way. I just kind of rolled my eyes to the far side and was turning my head. And I see half of a body, like the left half. 
leaning out from behind the tree and it was giant. I mean, it was, it was skinny. That was, a, I thought I hallucinated for a second cause it was the arms and legs were so thin and it seemed to have a broad chest and like a narrow, like it had like a V shape to it kind of, you know, but I didn't see one discernible muscle on it. They always talk about, they look like bodybuilders. This thing looked like it didn't have enough muscle to walk or move its arms. And I, I thought it was like 11 foot to me. It looked like it was 11 foot tall like six and a half, seven foot long arms or something, cause, or six foot arms, because the arm hung down so low. I mean, way more than Patty. Like, the arm was dramatically longer than Patty's in relation to where it came down on her knees area. Mm-hmm. And and as I was scanned from the leg up, just as I was getting to the head part, I, all I could see was that the um, eye was, the eye socket was cast in a shadow, like the brow ridge was so pronounced, and the eye socket was so recessed that I remember the one thing that struck me right up, I don't know why that struck me so more than most anything else was that there was no glistening in the eye. Like I couldn't see any moisture. Like it was so set back. Mm. And then I, and I turned my head all the way and it was gone. I, and I was like, okay, I know that they move and you're not supposed to take your eye off it. Cause they'll, and I was like, if one makes noise behind me, I'm not going to move because it's trying to distract me so that one can get away. So I just stared at that spot for like, I don't know, I was going to say 10 minutes, but it might have only been five. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get the recorder real quick. And I bent down, got the recorder. At that time, it, it uh, got it got away. Like it, it, I, so that's the whole thing. I don't know if there was another one that was watching me, that was watching, the, that could see me and the one behind the tree at the same time. Then it gave it a hand signal, like he's not looking, make your move. Because I don't know how it knew that I bent down for that couple seconds. And that time it took off. And then Monkey reacted like something moved. So I, I went back onto the old decommissioned road. And, man, there was the most pungent smell. I'd smelt that before, like at the Hickory Apache Res. And uh, so I smelt that smell again. And this was the strongest I ever smelled. And you could walk through it. That's how you know it's a Bigfoot smell like that. Like, And I'm convinced it's like they release it like a, like a skunk spray kind of thing out of that that secretion spot that the other primates have in their armpits is like human smell in their armpits. Like, you know, gorillas can excrete that pheromone out of their sweat gland. So I think that's exactly what happened because dude, there was not a puff of wind that day. It was 105 degrees, no wind at all. It was dead still there. And I walked back and forth. It was about uh, eight, I don't know, 10 foot wide. It was like a 10 foot circumference, 10 foot diameter zone of smell that you could walk through and if you took two steps out of it you didn't smell anything then you walk like it like burn your eyes i was like oh my god i think it was right here right so i started tracking it real fast and uh when you go down the, along the the old decommissioned road on your left is bluff creek on your right there's a thin strip of woods like maybe 30 feet 40 feet of woods and then it goes right into the dirt cliff that goes up to the onion mountain road so uh, i was looking down the creek then as I was walking along, there's this giant trail, like nine foot tall, four foot wide trail that went off to the side. I, I jammed up it real quick. There were still pebbles and dust coming down the cliff slope. And I could see like where the, it got its handholds in, where it went up. There was no way. I, I mean, I tried to follow. There's no way I could, but it scaled that cliff. But I'd walked by that spot literally hundreds of times and never noticed that trail right there because it was it was hidden in plain sight because I was always looking down at the creek or looking straight ahead. Yeah, yeah, and that that you know when you look at uh, the the layout of Laos Camp in general, that is the spot that makes most sense for them to approach and get away without being seen. Yep, and if you need a guide, I'm your man. Yeah, you're doing the Bobo's Bigfoot tours uh, legally out there in Six Rivers National Forest, and and you you can sign up with Bobo to go out to the spot if you want to see it. Um, you're ta- does it have to be an overnight trip, or are you just doing day trips too, Bobo, or what are you doing? I'm, I'm just going to do like a few. I'm, well, I got some private expeditions I'm not putting up to the public, and then I'm going to put up a couple for the public, and I'm going to post them here real soon. They should be up by the time this airs. I'm going to offer some different weekends and see which – which uh, is the most convenient for people because it's got to have a you know minimum number of people to make it worth going. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But yeah, we'll spend a couple of days out there and there's other spots to go and show the Jerry Crew spot. And Oh, yeah, yeah, the Jerry Crew spot. I mean, if you just drive in on the Fish Lake Road, that's the road that Jerry built. You know, yeah. uh, and you can go to uh, Bobby Short's website. I mean, Bobby's now passed, but her website is still up. And she has just all these reports from like Notice Creek, the Notice Creek Landing, 
um, you can go stand there and then bring a list of those reports with you. Like so much history has happened there. The Patterson Gimlin film site, you can go to um, uh, Mountain. Onion Mountain, where yeah, the Blue Creek Mountain, where those footprints were taken, and there's just so much history there. Like even if no Bigfoot were around for those two or three days that you were there, anybody who would go there would walk away satisfied because of the historical aspect of it. Right, right. Yeah, there's really nowhere quite like. Well, I mean, everywhere in the Siskiyou Mountains is, but like as far as <laughs> like that latitude, there's really nowhere else quite like it because it, it has the arid sort of aspect of Mendocino. Um, you know, like with the madrones and the oak and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, it's thick with cedar and like these these rainforest trees and whatnot, like uh, hemlock and cedar and all these like, uh, you know, plants that prefer like a wetter climate. It's where they both meet. You transition know, it, zone. Exactly. And transition zones, as any hunter will tell you, is where the most animal animal life will be. And the um, firefighters say that Bluff Creek is the worst drainage to fight and it's the most rugged. Mm, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. I know a ton of landslides happen there. Okay. The next thing I got asked the most about was people want to know: Are we still in touch with Matt Moneymaker and Renee? It, Matt called me literally when I was on the phone with you on for this call. So yes, I talked to Matt too uh, last week. We were going over uh, stuff about his new show coming up that he's pitching. Looks like he's going to get it going. There's no one I want to watch on television more than Matt Moneymaker. Flat out, I'd watch. It, it could be on. Him wearing speedos going swimming. Like, I don't care what it is, I'll watch it. <laughs> yeah, Matt, Matt is just over the top with enthusiasm and funny things to say. And yeah, he's quite the character in so many ways. I would love to see any television show with that guy in it. People who don't know Matt very well or people who hate Matt for whatever reason they have, um, do not give that guy the credit he deserves for Bigfoot. He has done more for the subject than most anybody else. Um, you know, perhaps outside the, you know, the horsemen or whoever, um, you know, Krantz and Titmus and, you know, and Green. John Green and, you know, all those folks. Patterson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Matt is right up there, though. He uh, The BFRO is something that every Bigfooter knows about it. And it's their go to spot. And um, for, a, you know, Matt didn't really go camping deep in the woods growing up. You know, he's kind of a city guy. He grew up in Hollywood and stuff. So all the knowledge that he's attained over the years from being out in the woods, he's kind of self-taught. And it takes up someone of Matt's, you know, persistence and frankly, stubbornness to get that kind of thing done, to teach oneself that much about what he, you know, knows or thinks he knows. You know what I mean? And um, right. there, I don't think there's anybody out there with a, a stronger drive for Bigfoot than that guy is, you know, on his, you know, on his best days, at least. And he will not accept failure. He will just keep pushing and pushing. He's relentless. Yeah. Yeah. He absolutely is relentless. And, and, um, it, that's, that's a testament to his success. I think in a lot of the things that he's tried to do over the years, you know, whether it's, oh, you know, for BFR, sure. Yeah. Yeah. He just says, I don't think he gets the credit that he deserves sometimes. And, you know, he might even take more credit than he deserves sometimes, but, <laughs> but, uh, but honestly, like the guy, the, the guy knows what he's talking about, you know, and, and he can find them. Like I disagree with them on a lot of stuff, not a lot, but there's certain things I definitely disagree with them about, but yeah, sure. If, if you give someone a topographic map and say, where's the Bigfoots moneymaker will, he will scour and he's good at finding where they're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would probably say he's the best I've seen at like, okay, here's a map. Here's Google earth. Tell me where I should look and I'll be darned if he doesn't give you three spots and one of them's going to hold a Bigfoot. Yeah. Renee, I talked to Renee about a month ago. She's doing well. She's got a lot of speaking engagement. She goes around and gives a little like 15 minute talk of based off her Ted talk. She did a couple of years ago and you know, they pay her good money to go inspire kids to go outdoors and be curious about nature. Yeah, I talked to her about a month ago. I think she's trying to get a, a gig together or something like that with all of us. But um, I, I spoke to her uh, for about 10 minutes or something, and she was saying something about taking children out to the woods um, to inspire curiosity and do like naturalist work with them and stuff. So I don't know what she has going or if it's coming up soon or what, but, you know, good luck to her on that. And, um, you know, whatever she puts out, I'll be, we'll be happy to support it here on Bigfoot and Beyond. The next question we got was asking about mountain monsters and why aren't we as good as those guys are at finding Bigfoot? Well, it's because uh, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't mountain monsters, a fictional show? Yeah. They're actors with a script. Yeah. Now uh, to be fair though, I've never met the guys. 
Um, I clearly they're not doing real Bigfooting because there's no such thing as a goat squatch or whatever they're looking at. I've understand. I also understand that the show is hilarious and a lot of fun to watch and I've never seen it. So I can't say much about it, but I can say that, um, on the weekend of June 1st, I'm going to be in Southwestern Pennsylvania at Eric Altman's Bigfoot camp out thing that he does every year for charity. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Meldrum is going to be there. I'm going to be there. A handful of us are going to be out there. Um, but, uh, so we'll announce, uh, at least one of the mountain monster guys. So well, I heard, looking, the, I heard they're great guys are super cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that same thing as well. So I'm looking forward to meeting them. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens. And I also got asked about the Yeti DNA that Brian Sykes did from Oxford university in Cambridge, mm-hmm. the famous, the famous professor they want to know about, was that really a polar bear? Or was that Yeti? Oh, well, the thing about it is anyone um, who is familiar with the Yeti literature, you know, the, stu- the, t- the, the, the excellent books written by um, Lauren Coleman on the subject or any number of them, if you're familiar with the Yeti literature, then you know that there are three animals that, are, that have the term Yeti associated with them. There's a large Bigfoot-like animal, you know, like a, you know, an eight-footer sort of thing, seven, eight-footer. There is a smaller one with a much more ape-like foot. And there are footprint casts available or footprint photographs available of that from that animal. So we know it has a more ape-like foot, has a, you know, the, the big toe sticks off to the side and um, abducted hallux is what that's called. And there's also a bear, a bear species that they put the word Yeti on. Sure enough, they took a, they took a hair sample from a bear pelt that was attributed to the Yeti. And lo and behold, it tested as bear. Is that a surprise? They took it off a bear pelt and it tested as bear. And that was enough for Nat Geo and all these other media outlets to say, oh, the Eddie's just a bear. No, don't worry about it. There's nothing to, nothing to see here. Move along. And, you know, with the size of the Himalayas, it doesn't surprise me at all that there's more than one type of hairy man-like thing out there. Uh, makes a lot of sense, actually. Oh, my God. I mean, the Sierra Nevadas and the Rocky Mountains are just little foothills when you get over there. When you see those, when you see Mount Everest and all that in person, it's it's truly on just jaw dropping on inspiring. Yeah. And talk about inaccessible terrain. There are literally no roads. You got to walk in or you're not getting there. And well, you can helicopter in, I suppose. But other than that, you're, you're not getting there unless you're walking or riding the Knox or something or a yak. Yeah, exactly. So then uh, pe- people wanted to also know what was our most memorable town hall witness? What's yours? We were in Branson, Missouri. Oh, okay. And he was the guy that when he was 15, it was his first day hunting by himself. He was about five or 600 yards from camp. was walking across a dry riverbed. His father had gone the other way. And as he got to this dry riverbed, it was about five, uh, about a hundred yards across. He thought he saw a bear on the other side. It looked like a bear with cubs in the uh, tree line, just in the shadows. And so he's looking and he's looking and he's looking and he's like, those, those aren't bears. Those what are they? Are they monkeys? Are they gorillas? And then he realized the dark shape standing out there was a big male one. And when he put the gun on it, when he, when he, when he lined the rifle up at it, he just hears this ear splitting, roaring scream. As he's looking through the scope, he realizes the thing's sprinting at him as it was coming across. He said within three seconds at the max, three seconds. And I believe it's, I've heard them run before. He said it had crossed at least 50 yards in that three seconds it was screaming, coming at him, eight foot tall, 700 pounds. And he raised his rifle. And I believe he had a 300 wind mag and fired a shot into its chest and it dropped. And this is, this is interesting because I've talked to two other people that have claimed to have shot a Bigfoot, wounded it. And they said the exact same thing this guy said. And I know he didn't talk to these people. He said that it, it dropped. And when it got up, it got into that position like a sprinter where it's on its hands and feet and its butt's way up in the air. And it, and then it, you know, like a sprinter at, a, at the starting line. Yeah. They get, yeah. They, get, they get in that position and then just explode. He said it took off running up the hill, kind of 45 degree angle away from him. Then he heard it just crash in the brush, just boom. And at this point, he was teared up and kind of crying and super emotional. And then he said, I talked to him afterwards and I called him on the phone after this also and talked to him again, clear up some points. He heard it crash up there, and then the other ones in the brush started screaming. And he got to look at them for a few minutes before he got charged. And it was uh, at least three or four small ones, like under five foot, and then two adult females. One was bigger, one was a little smaller. And then that night, he he went back to camp. His 
his father heard the gunshot and then he came screaming back to camp and his dad was like, what's going on? You know, and he told his dad what happened and they went over there and, uh, they looked and they could see where the thing had dropped. And there was a huge bleed out spot and crushed, crushed, uh, bushes where it had fallen and it, he was gone. But there was, there was a big blood bleed out spot. And that night they started hearing like wailing and gnashing of teeth and screaming and yelling and just the most horrifying sounds they ever heard coming from exactly on the hill where the thing had dropped. And then it went quiet. And then about 20 minutes after that, they started hearing creeping sounds around camp, like foot powder <laughs> footfalls. Yeah. And they, him and his dad were sitting there just scared out of their minds. And he said he was just in a, he said he was just frozen and his dad chambered around and then they didn't hear anything. And then he started unzipping the tent and they heard like everything just go real quietly. They just heard feet take off, you know, real slipping out. But quickly, by the time his father got out of the tent with the flashlight and his gun, they were gone. And the kid sat up all night, never went to sleep, sat there until the morning. Sun came up, they left. They never heard another thing the rest of the night. Nothing. Wow. Well, that's a great story. You know, I don't know about if I, there's any witnesses stands out to me, but I do remember a town hall. I want to say it was one of the New Jersey episodes, the second one. Um, oh, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I bet you do. Um, when we we're on stand, that was one where the guy was uh, like smoking weed or something and saw one yeah. run across the road, right? Yeah, th that witness kind of stands out to me because he was super funny, you know, and he's basically driving the mystery machine smoking weed and he saw a Sasquatch. Right. Uh, but. But that was, that was that same one where uh, you, we started hearing voices on, while we're on stage. And, you know, and, and you and Matt are looking around and where's that coming from? It's not like, and eventually after a few minutes of this weird panicked searching, you know, look, I think it's coming from up there. Where is it turning, uh, turning around on stage? What in the world? God, what, where's that coming from? I think those are ghosts. This place is haunted. And then oh, yeah. uh, Moneymaker, Moneymaker was, had solved the mystery. It was haunted. It was haunted. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the, the place we were was haunted. And it turns out that I think your phone was in your back pocket and like you butt dialed or you've turned something, you push play on something on your phone and it was just your phone in your back pocket making noise. But you know, the great detectives all decided it was, it was a haunting instead. <laughs> it was, uh, it was, it was my, my music. It was no effects. That was how, <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever it was, it was super funny. People want to know what we're doing now and how we met. They want to know the past. They want to know the future. They want to know the present. But a lot of people still have questions about finding Bigfoot because they still watch the reruns or they have it on TiVo or DVR. Yeah, and I think that's part of the role of this podcast. Like, first of all, I mean, number one, it's like a chance for uh, Bobo and I to get together and talk about Bigfoot stuff because both of us continue to do Bigfoot stuff all the time. You know, not a week goes by, I think, that, it's some, what, that both of us are doing something squatchy. But on top of that, a lot of people look to us um, and for to answer some of their questions. That's what we're doing right now. And that's part of the role of this podcast. And we're going to have witnesses on um, for various episodes that we personally find interesting for various reasons. But also, there's going to be a lot of episodes of Bigfoot and Beyond where it's just Bobo and I talking about stuff. Um, because, well, I'd like to talk to I, Bobo's one of my best friends. You're one of my best friends. You, you have been for a long time now. I just enjoy our conversations. But I think that other people can perhaps find value in some of the things that we're saying um, and talking about and some of our uh, experiences and, you know, just kind of coming on the ride with us. And I think that's going to be part of the fun of Bigfoot and Beyond is that, yeah, there's going to be a whole lot of Bigfoot stuff. But, you know, when you and I are talking, a lot of Beyond stuff happens too. As we get things rolling on this podcast, we will start branching out. We'll be having member section. We'll be having special content for those members. We'll be having um, password-protected areas where they can go. Um, sky's the limit, man. We're just starting out, and we're welcoming all of you to come on this with us and grow with us. Let's grow the community. Let's grow the podcast, man. Let's make this part of everyone's lives here. Let us know what you want us to talk about. If you have suggestions for either subject matter or guests that you think we should have on or some, or some interesting uh, thing that hasn't been done yet, I think outside the box because, you know, Bobo and I are living outside the box. You might as well help us uh, thrive there. If you think, <laughs> oh, you know what, this would be a lot of fun for Cliff and Bobo to endeavor. This would be a lot of fun for them to try this format, this thing, this game, this something, something that we haven't even thought about that I can't even put words on right now. I want to hear those ideas. I think I know Bobo does as well. We want to make this podcast, unlike anything else out there, more exciting, more entertaining, and more fun for everyone involved. 
Bobo, me, and you guys, the listeners out there. So help us out. Shoot us your ideas. Shoot us your suggestions. And we're just crazy enough to do it. All right, folks. Well, thanks for joining us on our first episode of Bigfoot Beyond. I'm Bobo. This is Cliff. And until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. Think that went good? Yeah, I think that's good. You want to both say keep it squatchy at the same time? Sure, sure. Go ahead. And until next time, keep, keep it, it squ- squatchy. Uh, too oh, much so. of a pause. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, uh, uh, just do it like normal talking. Sure, sure. Okay. And until next time, keep it squatchy. Keep it squatchy. <laughs> I'll, I'll do a one, 1,000, then go. Remember, this is edited. We can just go one or go three, two, one. Zero, and then like don't say anything on zero or no okay. three, two, and then on zero say keep it squatchy. Okay, and you can just edit that in. You know. Okay, three, two, one. No, keep don't it... say one. Don't say oh, one. Oh, all right. Three, two. Keep it keep squatchy. squatchy. <laughs> Pruitt, make sure you use all this. This is gold. Ah oh, shit! I can't talk today. <laughs>